mix them together, and all it is give me a rash. So, I mean, my knee's hurting, now my knee's broke out, so, you know, it didn't help a whole lot. Yeah, it made me want to itch all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah, I, I pray for you, Josh. Just, just work it, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, does she really? Huh. Man, I, I feel blessed then. All right. All right, well, they're going to mess with the microphone a little bit. Hopefully, you'll be able to hear some things a little bit, and it can be recorded. But we're in Psalms today. We're going to turn to Psalms 23. I think you can probably hear me now. But Psalms 23 today, we're going to be looking at We'll get through all we'll get through all the psalm because we'll read it. But it's a powerful message because we'll look into the psalm that we're very popular with, but I divided it really between this week and next week to have a better understanding of Psalms twenty-three. So when you hear Psalms twenty-three, like I was talking with someone at the bus shop last week about what the message was today, they immediately say, Well, that's the most popular psalm ever. I said, Well, yeah, pretty much is. And arguably it's probably the most recited. Uh, Bible verses outside of John 3.16. MacArthur says this. He said, this psalm is probably the best known passage in the Old Testament. It is a testimony by David to the Lord's faithfulness throughout his life. As a hymn of confidence, it pictures the Lord as a disciple's shepherd king host. So Psalms 23 is one we probably know, certainly probably have heard about before and probably heard recited many different times. And so most people refer to it as a gem uh, and, or a masterpiece that provides comfort and soul for an aching heart. One commentary I was reading expressed the psalm as a profession of joyful trust in the Lord as Good Shepherd King. So as MacArthur alluded to, David is the writer. He's the author of Psalm 23. The scholars debate upon the precise setting and circumstances in which prompted David to write the psalm. John Phillips summarizes the possibilities when he says, Some think he, David, wrote it as an old man approaching the end of life's journey, looking back over his life and rejoicing in the goodness of God. Others think he wrote it as a youth out there on the Judean hills, his father's flock around him, his harp in hand. And the soul aflame with the great thought which had just come to him, the Lord is my shepherd. But whatever the occasion, whatever circumstances that initiated David to write this particular psalm, it has withstood the test of time. Its popularity has not faded all the years. The comfort that one can receive by hearing or reading this particular psalm has not diminished at all. In the words of only six verses, are still very powerful. But how well do we know it? I mean, yeah, we've heard it, we use it, we refer to it, but how well do we know the song? I mean, while we love it, it has words and expressions that we're about to read in a few moments that we don't necessarily use anymore. I mean, for example, do we truly know what the valley of the shadow of death means, as mentioned in verse 4? Or also in verse 4, does the rod and staff still comfort? Or what about the table prepared in the presence of my enemies, which is mentioned in verse 5? So over the next couple of weeks, because that maybe is language now foreign to us in some nature, 
the next couple of weeks, we dig deeper into a very popular psalm, a psalm we've heard many different times, and now apply the wonderful words of Psalm 23. So stand with me this morning if you're able to do so. We're going to only stay in to honor the reading of the psalm. Again, Psalm chapter 23 is verses 1 through 6. Here's what the psalm of David tells us this morning as we read Psalm 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, when we come to you today, Lord, just reviewing and receiving and reading and hearing a very popular psalm that we've heard so many times before. Lord, today we pray and we ask, Lord, that you'll lead and guide us in dissection of this psalm so we can better see these words and how they apply to us and even better understand them. Lord, I pray today that we would hear this message and see how David's circumstances prompted him to write a psalm that has been meaningful for many people over the years. And today, Lord, I pray it's meaningful to us as well. And maybe even provide comfort to maybe an aching heart we have here today. So we'll be thankful then for what we shall learn and what we shall apply here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you read that particular psalm, again, only six verses, but yet only six verses, scholars still find a way to divide it. So divide it into three parts. One scholar said, David takes us in, into the glen in verses 1 through 3. Then he takes us down to the gorge in verses 4 through 5. And then finally to the glory in verse 6. He says, by doing so, he introduces us to the one who can finally take care of frailty, then to the one who can take care of our foes, and then finally to the one who can take care of our future. And that's a way to divide what we find here in only six verses of the popular psalm, Psalm 23. But actually, John Phillips' mother may be worded at best as a division, which happens to be the way we're going to apply it and dissect it for the next couple of weeks. She said, the psalm offers three secrets. It's the secret to a happy life, the secret to a happy death, and the secret to a happy eternity, which is a fitting way to divide it, and we'll use this for the next couple of weeks. So the first one then, as we go back to review, is the secret to a happy life. Now look around, and you can look around as well, to anybody in this room or anybody you know, and I've never met anybody who does not want a happy life. I mean, who wants to go around grumpy all the time? I don't know anybody that wants to be grumpy. So the question really becomes then, as this is the secret to a happy life, how can you get a happy life? the way a husband may think, and truly it does work. But 
actually what we learn here from David is that the happy life is not at all by chance. I mean, some people want to think that a happy life can be obtained by the lottery. Last week, you probably heard like I did, that the Powerball uh, power jackpot was over $2 billion. Did you hear the odds of winning? One in 292 million was the odds of winning $2 billion from the lottery jackpot of the Powerball. I mean, some guy in California won. I think he won by himself. So now he's receiving all that, okay? But as a jackpot, as that lottery jackpot grew larger and larger and larger, people were standing in lines waiting to get their ticket. So I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking, why? Why was somebody standing in line for so long to get a ticket to a Powerball lottery or $2 billion with a chance of one in 292 million to win. Why? And it's because they believe winning the lottery leads to a happy life. That's got to be their thinking. I mean, why stand in line so long with the odds so great that you're probably not going to win, and why spend that money? They have to be thinking that if I actually win this, it's going to lead to a happy life. Sheila's grandpa, Jake, for years, Jake Coomer was his name. For years, he would play the lottery. Every week, buy a new lottery ticket. And he just always wanted to make sure that if he happened to be the one to win, he wanted not just himself to have a happy life by the winnings, but everybody in his family. So he would take an opportunity and sit down each week, whatever the jackpot number was, he would do the division. So everybody in his family is going to get an equal amount or a share of the winnings if he happened to win. And he was doing so, why? Because he had to believe it led to a happy life. Last week I had a colonoscopy done. And it was great. Well, as far as it can be. I mean, the prep is not so good. But it went well. I mean, they found no polyps this time, which is good. So anyway, when I have a colonoscopy done, Sheila will not let me talk to anybody, will not let me drive. In fact, she grounded me. She took the keys and she took my cell phone. On Tuesday afternoon, I couldn't do anything because I have no cell phone, no keys, so I work at the house. But we have to get something to eat because you're fasting for so long, you're starving after you have that. I mean, I went from 7 o'clock Sunday night to whatever time we ate on, on about noon on Tuesday, having nothing to eat. I'm starving. So we go to Guacamole Grill. And we go to Guacamole Grill. It was the day that everybody's buying the lottery tickets and all these things are happening. A group of men behind us are talking about the lottery. And, and they're construction workers. And they're thinking about it. If they can win the lottery, they can quit construction and they can just have a happy, grateful life. That's the way people think. They think a, the, the secret to a happy life is winning the lottery, having this financial windfall that suddenly comes upon them. But David here, David informs us that a happy life has absolutely nothing to do with winning the lottery. It is not based upon monetary or some sort of financial gain. So what is David telling us here about the secret to a happy life? What is the root to happiness? He's saying is this. It is having a magnificent spiritual meaningful relationship with the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the key to a happy life. That's the secret. 
It's just engrossing and encompassing and inviting Jesus into your heart. I mean, have you ever noticed that some of the most miserable people in life are those living without Jesus? On the other hand, the happiest people on earth are those that are in a meaningful and healthy relationship with Jesus. As you look at the life of David, I mean, we should think that because we're in a relationship with Jesus that we're going to have this, you know, we're having a special, meaningful relationship, but it doesn't mean we're not going to have some misery at times. I mean, it's the secret to happy life, but there's still going to be those ups and downs we know through life. So if you look at David's life, it was the same. I mean, David had moments of misery, and we've all had. But David, if you examine a portion of his life, I mean, he ran. There was a time in his life when he was anointed to be the king, when he ran for his life from Saul, who sought out murderous plots against David. There was also a time in David's life where he lost his first son with Bathsheba. And then later in life, when he actually did have his first son, his actual first son then tried to take the throne from him. So he's had many encounters in that through his life in which he's had some misery and he's had these types of encounters. But misery for David was always short-lived because of a special, meaningful relationship that he sought after with God. And we find evidence of that special relationship in the words of his song, particularly in the words, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And what does it mean to say or to call the Lord my shepherd? I mean, to answer, we first have to recognize that the word Lord being used here is not the Adonai, the Hebrew word, which means more of a generic type expression of Lord, but rather the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is a primary personal name for God. It's the same word used when God answered Moses, when Moses was very inquisitive about what he's going to tell Pharaoh, about who's sending him to free the Israelites. He said, who shall I say is send to me? God said, tell them I am, meaning his personal name Yahweh. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, we find that expression, I am, tell him, I am, Yahweh. So, so when David utters the words here, in the beginning of the psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, he is literally saying, the great I am, Yahweh, is my shepherd, or Jehovah is my shepherd. It is recognizing the majesty, the power, the sovereignty of God. S. Edward Tesh offers this thought. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. He said, that's not some idol of wood and stone, dumb and impotent. Not the almighty dollar, so deceptive of many, but it's Yahweh, almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. He is my shepherd. I mean, it's Yahweh. It's God's personal name. The name that signifies God as the one who is, who was, and who is to be, and forever the eternal one. is calling upon God in a personal, spiritual, relational sense. And the only true way to say, the Lord is my shepherd, is to be in a personal, meaningful, intimate relationship with him. The only real way to have meaning behind to say the Lord is my shepherd. We can say it and it can be just empty and shallow. Or if we really want to say the Lord is my shepherd, the best way to truly express it 
And to truly mean it is to have that personal, intimate relationship with him. So the question is, do you do you know God in this manner? Because it's not enough to know about God. I mean, people can read the Bible from one cover to the other and know about God, but they really may not really know God. If they've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, they may really not know God. I mean, so it's not knowing about him. It's truly knowing him and creating that special relationship that is lasting. So it's not about knowing him, but it's truly knowing him. Because when you think about it, you can know about all kinds of people, but not know them. I mean, you can know, you can do all the research on your phone, the internet, whatever, to get on Google, do all the research you want for your favorite athlete, your TV star, the musician that you love, and you can review all their stats, the number of wins and losses they have. How many times they have won the Oscars or how many albums they sold. But you don't really know them. You know about them, but you don't really know them. Today, the Colts are going to have Jeff Saturday to be their new coach. Frank Reich is out. They dismissed him. And so now they got Jeff Saturday playing for, or actually going to coach the, the Colts. Now, Jeff Saturday used to play for the Colts. So, a lot of people are talking about Jeff Saturday all this week saying, look, the dude has never coached a game. Hey, I may be back in high school, but he's never coached at a professional level. All kinds of things talking about him all week. So I thought, well, I'm going to dismiss all that. I'm going to do my own research on Jeff Saturday. And here's what you can find out. Yeah, he's the Colts' new coach. He was born June 8th, 18th, 1975, which makes him 47 years old. He's six foot two, 295 pounds. He went to college where? North Carolina. He's a six-time Pro Bowl, a two-time All-Pro. He played 14 years in the National Football League, 13 years with the Colts. One year, he played with the Green Bay Packers and won the Super Bowl that year. In his lifetime of being a center for the Colts owner the Packers, he's only had 24 penalties against him, which is remarkable. 14 years as a center. Now, most of those are holding. You get a lot of that in the offensive line. But that's about what you can learn about Jeff Saturday. And there's more. I mean, his wife's name is Karen. He has three children, Jeffrey, Savannah, and Joshua. And I could go on what I know about Jeff Saturday. But do I know him? Not at all. I don't know really him at all. I can know about him. But don't know him. The point is, don't make that mistake with God. Yearn to know him, not about him. Know him by entering a meaningful, intimate relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Truly know him. That way you can express the same words as David. The Lord is my shepherd. It's a very important word within the context of the Lord is my shepherd obviously is the word Lord, which we took a moment to dissect, to understand that's Yahweh's personal name. He is our shepherd. But notice the other important words maybe dissect in that expression, the Lord is my shepherd, is the word shepherd. So we must ask the question, although we may already know the answer, what is a shepherd? The answer is not what you may be thinking. 
How many times have you seen the Charlie Brown Christmas? You ever seen it? Charlie Brown Christmas. Who plays the part of the shepherd? Linus. So when I started putting this together last week, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Linus. I'm thinking, you're kidding me. You're thinking of Linus as a shepherd? He plays the part of a shepherd in the Christmas special. A cartoon, in fact. So that is not all the shepherd know. I mean, so what is a shepherd? We know a shepherd what it is. In very simple terms, a shepherd is the leader and protector of a sheep. That's very simple. But it's important here to make a distinction of the word shepherd. Because many leaders, many managers, often refer to themselves at times as a shepherd. But are they truly a shepherd? I mean, all they really do is lead and direct. They do nothing when it comes to the caring and giving and sharing. So it's extremely important to note that a shepherd is much more than a leader. One thought said a shepherd describes a more close and devoted relationship, whereas a king or whatever might do what's best for the majority. A shepherd knows and stewards each one of his sheep. In the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus says in Luke 15, 4, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Which reveals for us then that a shepherd cares deeply, not only for all of his sheep as a whole, but also for each and, each and every single one of his sheep. And that's how God knows and cares for us. He knows each one of us and everything about us. I mean, he knows our comings and goings. He knows how many hairs we have on our head. He even knows when one of us is lost and makes a special provision to find us through his son, Jesus Christ. So essentially, then, we are just mere sheep needing a shepherd to watch over us. Why do we need a shepherd to watch over us? Because at times, sheep like us, we just wander. Wander away and go astray. And sometimes we try to do things on our own. But then our good shepherd who provides for us and protects us and cares for us, well, he begins to look upon us and direct our path back to where we need to be. I mean, we have a loving shepherd that loves and cares for us so much. Listen. We have a shepherd who loves and cares for all of us so much, he is willing to lay down his life for us. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus truly is our good shepherd. The NLT commentary stated, sheep are completely dependent on the shepherd for provision, guidance, and protection. The New Testament calls Jesus the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the head shepherd, as the Lord is the good shepherd, so are we his sheep, not frightened passive animals, but obedient followers, wise enough to follow one who will lead us in the right places and in the right ways. That's what a shepherd does. He cares for his sheep. He not only leads them, but he loves them and provides for them, making sure they go in the right places in the right ways. And David knows this, so he can call then the Lord my shepherd. He can say, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. As you hear that, we talked about the Lord and we talked about the shepherd, but there's one more key word there and it sticks out in the middle. As in my shepherd. As in my own personal shepherd. Providing for me. Yeah, he provides for all, but he provides for me. He's my shepherd. Charles Spurgeon says, the sweetest word of the whole phrase is my. He does not say the Lord is the shepherd of the world at large and leadeth forth the multitude as his, as his flock. I mean, he is. However, he is a shepherd. If he is a shepherd to no one else, he is a shepherd to me. The words are in the present tense. Whatever the believer's position, he is under the pastoral care of Jehovah. God is providing for us because he's the shepherd. He's my shepherd. He's your shepherd. In a personal sense, he is indeed your shepherd, providing for you, making sure you have everything that you need so that you shall not want, which means that you shall not lack. Spurgeon continues, he says, when the Lord is my shepherd, he is able to supply my needs, and he is certainly willing to do so, for his heart is full of love. I shall not lack temporal things. I mean, does he not feed the ravens and cause their leaves to grow? How then can he leave his children to starve? I shall not lack spiritual things. I know that his grace will be sufficient for me. I may not possess all that I wish for, but I shall not lack. God's loving, protective care is absolutely perfect. And he and we as a sheep, he provides for us and we need nothing else. He gives us everything that we need. Charles Stanley adds, if you have the Lord, you have everything. If you don't have the Lord, you have nothing. Is the Lord your shepherd? Is Jesus your savior? Are you part of God's flock? Those questions you must ask yourself. Because the secret to a happy life is being in a close, personal, meaningful, intimate relationship with the Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's when we can say, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. He provided everything that we need. We shall not lack any provision. Even us everything that we may need. With everything we need. He may not give us everything we want, but He gives us everything we need. Which becomes evident, really, in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, he said, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. In verse 2, if you reflect upon it for a moment, I mean, watching lush green pastures or meadows and a gently breeze brings a calmness to our spirit. I mean, I, I could be sitting in a deer stand and watch the snow come down, fall upon the trees and the ground, and just be in the moment. And it just gives me a calming sensation knowing that I, I'm like, it's like I'm beside still waters or green pasture. And it just kind of helps me because there's so many times where in life where we, the vision here, still waters could put our mind at ease because most of the time we're living life through a raging rapids. So we need these still waters to help us and put things in perspective. And God can do that because he's our shepherd. So he, lakes, he makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters in a very busy, raging, rapid raging world that we're living in. In verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. God in his wisdom, the Lord knows that we need a restored soul. He knows that we live with a troubled spirit. So he guides us to righteousness, rest, and peace. David Jeremiah says, this is a picture, Psalm 23, particularly verses 2 and 3. He said, this is a picture of complete peacefulness and rest. The good shepherd leads his beloved ones to a place of sustenance and rest. Humanity needs soul restoration because of spiritual carelessness, difficult circumstances, secret sin, and the world's influence. He said, the creator of heaven and earth desired intimate involvement with his people, wanting to lead them, not just point the way. That's what makes him a good shepherd. Not just pointing the way, but wanting to be involved in every aspect of your life. When we realize truly what the Lord provided for us and how he takes care of us, we need to recognize that we indeed do have a good shepherd. And we're in that intimate, close relationship we can truly say, the Lord is my shepherd. We're only in the beginning stages of a Psalms worth dissecting much more. There were three particular points that we had to cover. We only covered one today, of the secret to happy life. But there's so much more. We're only halfway through the Psalm, verses 1 through 3. We'll have verses 4, 5, and 6. But as Warren, Worry, Warren Worsby notes, he says, certainly this Psalm has a message for the sorrow. We know that. But it is unfortunate that it's used primarily at funerals. Because Psalms 23 focuses on what Jesus does for us all the days of our life. And not just at death. So while people of all ages love and quote this psalm, its message is for mature Christians who have fought battles and carried burdens. And that is every one of us. Every one of us have fought some battle or carried burdens in life. In fact, right now, we still may be fighting battles and carrying some heavy burdens. So if you find yourself here today fighting that battle or carrying that burden, then just give it to God. And just come and rest in your shepherd's arms. Find the peace that you're longing for, that you really desire for. Allow the good shepherd to direct you to righteousness. Now, maybe you live life thinking, I can do all that on my own. But I ask, why fight your battle? Why wrestle with it? Why wrestle with it at all when a loving, compassionate Savior and shepherd is willing to do it for you? Make the Lord your shepherd. Jesus loves you. Make the Lord your shepherd today. Father, Lord, we thank you for how we can begin to look at a psalm, Lord, that's very popular in nature, and begin to look to see how it can provide a very happy life for us. Or today, the message maybe is just quite simple. That the life that we're desiring, the life that we're wanting, the happy life, Lord, that we're longing for, really just has one ingredient. And it's your son, Jesus. So I pray for all of us today here, Lord, that we're gathered together, that if we're looking and searching for peace and happiness, particularly happiness, Lord, and comfort 
for our soul. You need to look no further than your son Jesus. Lord, thank you for providing that for us. Thank you for thinking of us, Lord. Thank you for giving us your son. It gives us that peace. I love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.